As Christy pointed out, it is the seventh and final Sunday of Epiphany, Transfiguration Sunday. We have been reiterating how the season of Epiphany began with Jesus' baptism and it ends, reaches its culmination with Jesus' transfiguration. The only two times in the gospel where we hear God speaking directly from heaven, Jesus' baptism, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Jesus' transfiguration, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Epiphany is a season where Jesus is revealed to us by God the Father, where we hear and are invited to share God's perspective and his passion for his son. And so I like the way that Frederick Dale Bruner put it. He said, the one fact that God the Father seems to want all believers to know above absolutely all other facts is how much we have in Jesus. This morning in particular, we're invited to contemplate the transfiguration. And this is a fully orbed sensory experience, the transfiguration. We're invited to see a vision. We're invited to hear a voice. And we're invited to feel a touch. The vision. Now, this isn't just a random vision that kind of happens upon the disciples. Jesus is very intentional. He takes his disciples up a mountain, his closest friends, what people often call the inner circle, Peter, James, and John. He leads them up the mountaintop, and he gives them a slight glimpse of his glory, a vision of his splendor. And Matthew recounts this story with great detail. He pays attention to detail, as so many of the gospel writers do. It's after six days that Jesus does this. He takes them not just onto any mountain, but on a high mountain, not any part of Jesus' body shone, but his face shone in particular. And then it wasn't just any random cloud that overshadowed them. It was a bright cloud. And I think Matthew intends all of these details to impress themselves upon our imaginations and give us the sense that this vision is very much like Moses' encounter with God on Mount Sinai. The reference to six days parallels Moses' six days of preparation on Mount Sinai before the receiving of the law. The glorious transformation of Christ matches Moses' dazzling splendor as he descends from the mountain and has to veil his face. Peter's misguided suggestion that they should erect some tents or houses is probably based on the pattern of living in tents as Moses led the Israelites to the wilderness. The bright cloud that overshadows the mountain, makes one think of the cloud that descended upon the tabernacle and temple and filled it with God's Shekinah glory and then followed the Israelites as they went through the desert. And the fear of the disciples <laughs> no doubt matches the fear of those who saw Moses' face when he came down the mountain. See, Matthew wants us to see that this is no ordinary vision this day. The disciples are having a Sinai experience, but there's a major difference. Jesus, whereas Moses radiated God's glory, Jesus radiates his own glory. It says, his face shone like the sun. His clothes became white as light. And so what is Jesus doing here? He's taking his disciples up to the mountaintop, and he is giving them a glimpse of his glory, his preexistent glory that he had with the Father before the world ever began, and his future glory that he will have when the kingdom of this world is the kingdom of God. And every square inch and every nook and cranny of the universe cries out on bended knee, Jesus Christ is Lord. 
a glimpse of that glory on the mountaintop. Now, at this point, I personally would expect the disciples, Peter, James, and John, to be flat on their faces. <laughs> Luke says they were at this point, but Matthew doesn't. I mean, that's what happens when Isaiah chapter 6, when Isaiah, the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, it seems, he saw a vision of the Lord's train in the temple, and boom, he was on the ground. Woe is me, Lord. I mean, that's what happened to John in Revelation chapter One, he sees a vision of Jesus very much like this one, his face shining bright like the sun, and boom, John is on his face, and Jesus has to pick him up again. Here, in Matthew 17, rather than prostration, this vision seems to spark a conversation. It's quite an interesting conversation at that. Moses and Elijah appear all of a sudden. (laughs) The law and the prophets of the Old Testament, the greats, coming, talking with Jesus, we're told. What a conversation that must have been. It's one of the things I like about this imagery, actually, is the the people on the top. It it has this sense of leaning into each other, an almost huddled conversation. And one of the brilliant things is that Peter decides to chime into this conversation between Jesus and Moses and Elijah. He wants to join, too. Verse 4, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish... I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. Now, Peter gets a bad rap for a lot of things in his life, right? But I mean, how would we have reacted if we were in this situation? Who knows? Probably would have been worse. But notice one of the interesting things is in verse 5, Peter gets cut off. (laughs) This is one of my favorite places in the Gospels. Peter tries to chime in, and then God interrupts Peter and cuts him off. (laughs) I just think it's this wonderful moment. Okay, okay, Peter. You're missing the point. How is Peter missing the point, though? Why does he need to be interrupted? Because I find this in my own life. I need to be interrupted oftentimes. I think there's lots of answers, but I can see two. And one is that, like Peter, we're constantly tempted to treat Jesus as one amongst equals. I didn't really see this until I was reading somebody else that helped me see it. And where do I get, where does this come from? It just comes from the end. It says, if I'll make three tents here, Peter says. One for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. Notice the symmetry and equal treatment for all. In other words, he's, seeking, he's seeing Jesus as part of this great lineage of the Old Testament, which he should. But in a sense, they're on an even playing field. And so what the cloud comes in and interrupts Peter with, and the voice, is he says, no, this is my beloved son. Like, he's not just one of the great Old Testament lawgivers. He's not just one of the great prophets, although he fulfills the law and the prophets. He is my beloved son. From eternity past to eternity future, my beloved son. He has no equals. He is qualitatively different than the prophets. I love the way the author of the Hebrews puts it at the beginning of his magnificent sermon. He says, long ago, At many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And then what he says about his son, who he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the radiance of God's glory and the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the power of his word. So listen to him. This is my beloved son. See, we can't treat Jesus as if he's just one voice in a much larger conversation. And this is hard to do, if I'm honest. I mean, we live in a world of voices vying for our attention and our recognition. 
their claims fill our inboxes and our news feeds and our text threads. <laughs> and the clamor easily clutters our hearts and minds. And we end up with this question of like, how do we navigate life with input from so many places? How do we navigate life with input from so many places? It can be flat out overwhelming at times, and we can have a temptation running in two directions. One way is to get swept up, to get lost in it. Another is to withdraw and disengage. And here, I think the Father is saying no to both of those. I think he's inviting us to navigate the many voices under the authority and the guidance of one voice. When Jesus speaks, he speaks as Lord. When he speaks, he speaks from the center of reality. He created everything. When he speaks, he speaks as one who has authority. He speaks as one who knows what is good and what is true and what is beautiful. This is my beloved son with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. This is the one voice that will help you navigate the many. So like Peter, I think sometimes we treat Jesus as one amongst many equals. But also like Peter, I think we'd much prefer glory without the cross. Now, where do I get this? From the preceding context. If you look where the transfiguration takes place in each of the Gospels, it takes place right on the heels of Peter's confession, saying, Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus is like, yes, Peter. And then Jesus says, now let me tell you something about that. That Christ is about to suffer and die, be risen three times, third time. And then Peter rebukes Jesus for telling him that the Son of Man, the Christ, the anointed one of God, will suffer. Because it is, it is just impossible for the Lord to suffer. And Jesus says, get behind me. And then, right on the heels of that, Jesus says, and let me tell you something else. It's not just me who's going to suffer, but whoever wants to follow me, deny himself, take up his cross, and go on the same path I'm heading on. And so in that context... Imagine Peter now on the mountain with this glory on the mountaintop, and it's like, yeah, let's stay here in this place. <laughs> I don't want to go down from this mountain. I think no one's captured this point more beautifully than Dietrich Bonhoeffer. In 1934, he was teaching at the seminary in Finkenwald, and it was a seminary where he was preparing pastors for ministry in the confessing church in Germany. And he delivered a sermon in 1934 on the transfiguration, and he entitled it, I thought beautifully, Back to the Cross. They don't stay on the mountaintop, but they go back to the cross. And he says this. He says, the disciples want to stay in the world of the transfiguration. They want to remain in the world of Jesus' visible glory and his visible power. They want to remain where they can see. And no longer want to return to the world where they cannot see what they believe. And then he goes on and says this. He turns the corner and makes it personal. And so it is with us. We want Jesus as the visibly resurrected one, as the splendid and transfigured one. We want his visible power and glory, and we no longer want to return to the cross, to believing against all appearances, to suffering in faith. And so we say, Lord, it's good here. Let us make dwellings. You see, I think like Peter, we'd much prefer power of God without the weakness of the cross. Discipleship without self-denial. Absolution without confession. Forgiveness without transformation. Healing without those long, long nights of waiting. 
And it's into this very personal and this very raw context that a cloud comes and interrupts Peter and a voice speaks from that cloud. And we hear that voice in verse 5. This is my beloved son with whom I well pleased. Listen to him. Question that I've been asking a bit is why listen to him? And I think the key lies in this beloved son-ness. Like this is the one that's in sync with me, the father, I think the voice is saying. He's intimately acquainted with my, the father's heart. He knows what pleases and delights me, the father. He created the world with me. He upholds and protects and wants to save the world with me. And therefore, he speaks from the center of reality. He speaks from a knowledge of the truth. And he speaks for the good and the flourishing of all his creatures. So listen to him, obey him, trust him, follow him, because he's in sync with me, the Father. I think this is so important for us to grasp, because in the valley, it will not always feel that way. Notice how Jesus takes them up onto the mountaintop, but then the end of our passage, he takes them down off the mountaintop. In the valley, being in sync with Jesus doesn't always feel so glorious because <laughs> it often puts us out of sync with the world and the culture in which we live. It invites resistance sometimes, sometimes even ridicule, and sometimes even outright rejection. That's why Jesus said right before the transfiguration, if anyone would come after me, they're going to need to deny themselves and take up their cross. I think this is what gave the confessing church in Germany such courage and hope amidst the reign of the Third Reich. And it's why in their doctrinal confession when they wrote it, it's called the Barmine Declaration, you should look it up, they began with these really marvelous words. They said, Jesus Christ, as he has attested for us in Holy Scripture, is the one word of God which we have to hear and which we have to trust and obey in life and in death. For them, it really was a life and death matter. <laughs> and so notice how they start off their church confessional statement saying, we've got to hear the one word of God, Jesus Christ, and live by his voice because everything else rises and falls on it. By the way, I think when the church has become complicit in unjust political movements, I think it's renewal always means going back to the place of listening. The church loses her way when the church fails to listen. And that's one of the reasons why I'm so excited over the summer. I want us to spend some time in the Sermon on the Mount because it is us heeding this, listen to him. Listen to him. That's the way to renewal for the church. Now, as the disciples hear this voice, interestingly, they finally get flattened. <laughs> so in Matthew, he wants to focus on the fact that it's not the vision that flattens the disciples, it's the voice. So they're flat on their faces, and they're terrified, we're told, in verse 6. But Jesus, in all of his luminous and majestic glory, responds to human fear with gentleness, the gentleness of a touch. Look at verses 7 and 8. Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. Picture the scene, the disciples quivering in fear on the ground, and Jesus approaches them and he touches them. He is their Lord. He's not going to leave them in that place of fear. 
He stays with them, he restores them, he encourages them, and he empowers them because he wants to lead them off the mountaintop back into the valley. There's a little children's book that I read with my daughter from time to time. It's called The Tale of Three Trees. Has anybody read this before? Sometimes I don't know whether to think it's overly sentimental or just absolutely brilliant. But there's three trees, and it starts with once upon a time on a mountaintop. Once upon a mountaintop, three trees dreamed of what they wanted to become when they grew up. And one tree said, I want to hold treasure. And the next tree said, I want to become a marvelous sailing ship, a strong, big sailing ship. And the other tree said, I never want to leave this mountain. I just want to grow and be the tallest tree in the world so that I can point others to God. Well, the next day, people came and chopped down the trees and took them down the mountaintop. And the first tree was excited when he was brought to a craftsman's house, it says, but then was very disappointed when he was made into a feeding trough for animals. The second tree was excited but then was brought when he was brought to a shipyard, but then really disappointed when he was used to make a simple and humble fishing boat. And then the third tree was really confused when it was cut into these sturdy beams, but then just laid in a yard waiting. And the story goes on and says, you know, eventually the first tree held a baby in it, and it was surprised by the significance of that baby. And the second tree heard one of the, its Crew members say, peace, be still to wind and storms, and the wind and storms stopped. And I thought, wow, this is an interesting fishing boat to be. And then the final tree ended up being used to make the beams of the cross that would actually hang, that the Savior of the Lord would actually hang on. And one of the interesting things is that at the very end, it talks about how the cross, the tree that was made into the cross, shuddered with fear because of its purpose and how it climbed so much lower. Its, its life seemed like an utter failure to what it had dreamed of being on the mountaintop. And then it talks about the joy that comes when the tree sees resurrection glory, which the transfiguration is a foretaste of resurrection glory. And it says God's love had changed everything. It made the first tree beautiful. It made the second tree strong. And every time people thought of the third tree, they would think of God. And that was better than being the tallest tree in the world. Now, like I said, I don't know whether to think it's absolutely brilliant or kind of trite and sentimental. But I think what it gets to is so often we envision our lives as being these sort of mountaintop experiences. (laughs) We have grand hopes and grand dreams for what we will become and what we will do. We have grand hopes and dreams for what it will mean to be a follower of Christ and, and to behold his glory. And yet so often we find ourselves being led by Christ into the valley, into the valley where we live and work, where we rest and where we play, where we have to trust and hope. But remember, this is a Mount Sinai experience. Jesus gives us the mountaintop so that our faces will shine with his light when we go down into the valley, just like Moses did like little stained glass windows walking around society and the world, shining the light of Christ, reflecting and refracted. 
on the evening before Dr. Martin Luther King was assassinated in Memphis, Tennessee, he gave a speech that would eventually become his last. It was known as the mountaintop speech. Let me read the final words of that speech to you. What would be the final words of his final speech? He said, well, I don't know what's going to happen to me now. (laughs) We've got some difficult days ahead. But it doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place, but I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountaintop. And I've looked over it, and I've seen the promised land. I've seen his glory. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know that we as a people will get to that promised land, and I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing anybody because my eyes have seen the glory of the coming Lord. Brothers and sisters, may it be so with us this week. I speak these things to you in the name of the Father and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit.